Hi, welcome to Chicana Code Switchers. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicanas in our master's program. We are also scholar practitioners in student affairs. This podcast is intended to provide insights into higher education with a focus on social justice and pláticas of student experiences. With that being said, let's start the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. I'm here with my co-host, Ariana. Hello, everyone. And my name is Patricia, and we're here um, on a new week. Um, I started, uh, I went back to school this past week, um, so pretty excited for the new semester. Adriana, how is life going? Life is going well. I am still... <laughs> Um, in the summer mode, um, just finished with, um, literally just finished with the student of color orientation, um, started building new friendships, you know, connecting with people and, um, yeah, getting ready for the new school year as an employee. That's good. I think for me, this semester, it's been really exciting because, since this is my second year being here in Fresno, like, I feel like I'm a lot more adjusted to eat. I'm adjusted to, like, the, I made new friendships, new people. So it's been, like, really exciting to just, like, hit the ground running as opposed to, like, that whole shift of, like, what is going on? Like, how does the school function? Adjusting to my job. So um, it's really nice. Um, and for this episode, what we wanted to check in was um, our main topic um, for today is a lot more about the misconception of life after college. So, Ariana, could you walk us through um, your experience and, like, the topic? Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to say that, you know, graduating from Harvard was a great accomplishment, and I definitely sat with that um, that experience for a good month and then I started applying for jobs I mean I, I've been applying for jobs since February and I think uh, one of the things that we talked about um, was highlighting the experience of graduating from an Ivy League institution what that journey is like um, and the misconception that revolves around graduating from such institution you know like I, I know that my parents um, when I got accepted were like would hear from other people who had gone through a similar institution, um, were not first generation or, you know, like other people who have been in graduate school tell my parents that, you know, Ariana is going to be set. She's going to be good. She's going to make a lot of money. She's because I went to an institution and that's, um, that's something that for me, like, I'm like, it kind of alleviated my parents' concerns about me taking a break from working to go to grad school because they had that expectation that once I graduate, like, I'll be good. And to an extent, it is, it is true that I can use, you know, the Harvard name and the connections and networks that I've built, but, I mean, I still have to do the work. I still have to apply. I still have to interview. I still have to go through all those processes 
that don't necessarily guarantee me a job, don't guarantee me a big salary, don't guarantee me, you know, anything. It's just like going to undergrad. You know, I think I was sharing with you that it's just going through the same um, steps of like having gone to Sonoma State and applying for jobs and, you know, making the most out of that position to move, you know, to continue moving forward. And, you know, that resonates with me now and and it's been a learning experience that yes to an extent you know it's all about the connections but it's all about like who knows who and to what extent and um you know it's been a learning process in itself like just applying and you know getting the phone interview like I have no problem getting the phone interview I have no problem you know uh, maybe being called in to get it the second interview but it's always that last interview that it's like that always, you know, it's like miss, make it or miss it. And it's been a lot of that um, lately. And part of it is like, I am not necessarily looking for a full-time position myself or like a permanent position. I'm not looking for a big title because my ultimate goal is to apply for PhD programs. And so there's that like, how much do I want it? And how much is it like, the institution, the organization, the place that I'm applying to, what is, what are they looking for? And are they really about what they say they are about? You know, there's a lot of components that go into this. And so like, sometimes um, we doubt ourselves. And I want to say that, like, I speak for myself, like that can be, um, you know, triggering or traumatizing for some of us. And, And the reason I bring this up and that I was sharing it with you is because I wanted to like, Talk about it. Talk about what goes behind the scenes uh, of having graduated from an Ivy League institution as a first generation from a low income background. And it's like, you know, you hope that you don't have to encounter some of the challenges that you face as a as an undergrad, but they still emerge. You're still, you know, first gen, you're still maybe low income, you still have like that experience or that of having gone through the system, you know, not having every, you know, everything figured out and being the one to have to figure it out for yourself because I still can't rely on my parents to tell me to direct me to guide me I still have you know I have to you know rely on my connections I still have to do the groundwork because you know I you know even though I went to an Ivy League institution it it is not what people think it is and I'm happy to share that experience because I want to make sure that people know, like it's, it's not all that it seems. And especially as, you know, as I told you, I just finished the student of color orientation and that's, those are some of the topics. Those are some of the themes and those are some of the advice that not only myself, but like other students who have now become alumni are, are sharing with incoming cohort. It's like, the big H is bigger the further away you are from Cambridge, Boston, the East Coast. So those were some of the things that we were talking to them about and like things that I put on hold for a whole you know year. And now I'm having to like, okay, right, that's right. Like, it's not that easy. It's not, it's, it's not much easier than what it was before. Yeah, and it's also because you're at a whole different level of interview process. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the farther you go within your career, the farther you go into your educational um, 
like degrees and stuff like it just it's just the same like you're starting back again to like step one in that other phase or that other chapter that you have um could you tell us about like what your interview was with the nonprofit in new york yeah so it was interesting because um so i was interviewing for this nonprofit in new york city um that the only reason i applied was because i was under the impression based on the job description that it was going to be work that i could do remotely so i'm not planning to move to new york and the reason i applied and um, was because of that. Um, but once I interviewed with them, they were very curious about why I pursued a master's in higher education and how I was planning to use that to help their nonprofit. Like they were like, so why did you go into this to get this master's and why higher ed? And like, they were just so stuck on the fact that it was higher ed and not like college I, I want to say like the nonprofit was based around college graduates seeking employment and they, um, I, how would you say like they, they were really proud of the fact that after six months or three months, most of their fellows gained employment with these big companies or big organizations that they had connections with. Um, and they were just like, I just found it curious that they were so stuck on the fact that I got my degree in higher ed. And I'm like, in the end, it's still education. And in the end, I'm still going to do the job. I still care about the student's well-being. And so the emphasis of my degree seemed to matter more than the actual work that I would do for them. They probably don't have that many people, you know, majoring or, you know, that's, that's the degree that they want and they might just not understand like because I've seen a lot of other organizations like that but it's like they are so used to getting like business students into mm -hmm. these like all these firms this corporate like and that speaks to the volumes of like there's this disconnect of like what happens with people who want to work in higher ed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where's and that where's that pipeline yeah yeah and I think I mean it's a three-year startup I got the sense that they're still trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, and that ha has happened. It's not like I haven't got, like I said, I've gotten the interviews and I've even interviewed at the Harvard Business School, Harvard Chan School, you know, all these places because I, I'm looking at assistant director positions within diversity work. But the interesting fact about that is like with the business school, one of the questions that they pose, even though I'm an employee at Harvard right now, I'm an internal candidate, you know, like that ups my chances, you would say. They're, they were more concerned about whether or not I read the Wall Street Journal than my actual qualifications around diversity, around recruitment, around relating to the students. And I'm like, as a first generation student, when you're trying to find someone who will recruit other first gens, you're more worried about whether or not I read the Wall Street Journal. Like, do you really think that an MBA student is going to be doing this position? It's going to be lowering their salary to do this role. No. And that was something that I did share with the um, president of the Harvard um, Latino Alumni Alliance, because she's the one that uh, told me about the position and encouraged me to apply. And I'm like, this was my experience through the interview process. And she was like, they asked you that question. I told them not to ask that question. 
And I'm like, see, like, there's a disconnect right there to what you were saying, Patricia. Yeah, and there's the the misconceptions of, like, the hiring process. Like, the way that I, you know, realized, like, the, the, the hiring process, I'm like, here's the, here's what I got from the description, here's what I got from the website from the people and all these things but then when you go into the interview it's like a whole different direction and you're like I thought you know my version of what student affairs is and the way that I work is very much in first gen lens and uh, feminist you know perspective like all these other things I'm like this is how we liberate our students and then they come in and like they're at a whole different universe yeah. Um, not here doing completely things that make no sense, mm-hmm. that don't even hit anything about like working with students and they think they're doing really great. Mm-hmm. And most of the and it makes sense because most of them have a business background and degrees when they're getting hired. Like I've seen so many new um coming in new professionals coming into these roles. Everyone usually has some sort of business background either an MBA a business in like undergrad and personally for me as a as a as a former business student like I use that more for management than for like really taking in and internalizing capitalism and the way that they do like their performance stuff because that doesn't make any sense it doesn't a lot of things don't make sense also in student affairs <laughs> that I'm like, oh, you know, trash that, you know, throw that, out. you know, you, I have this innate belief of like understanding how it would work for students because I am that student, but then that's not part of the performance, you know, things. That's not about their own definition about what student success is. That's not their metrics. That's not how they work and function. And they really don't like, there's like this whole, like, there's so many layers to like not only seasoned professionals but new professionals coming in and there's like completely different understandings of what we want to do and then now there's like this conflict within the office of like the new people coming in that have no clue what to do and then the people that have been there too who are who have experience in multiple places on campus that really do work and are really well connected with the students and you get pushed to the side because you don't care about these superficial things that make no sense they all like se alaban a ellos mismos and they like really center the student and they say that they're student-centered and I'm like you're you're not because that wouldn't you wouldn't put you in the center yeah of the conversation and the metrics and I think, you know, it also, it's important to point out that the people hiring or the people interviewing. Oh, that's the word. <laughs> they don't share that background. So, like, a lot of the things that I may point out as a first-gen person about diversity, about, you know, when they ask me, what does diversity mean to you? It's like, well, I am diversity. I did maneuver through these systems. I, ha- I hold that experience personally. That may not be the response that they're seeking, no, it's like they don't, they don't, uh, they, it, it doesn't capture in their head. Mm-hmm. No se les, no se les mete en la cabeza that it's like your theory in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Like you are that person that they're supposedly like thinking about. And if, and they don't even realize that, the, you know, the other layers too, where if I tell them certain things, like here's my positions and stuff like that, then, you know, you get pigeonholed no matter what. Yeah. And I really hate when, other people advise you to go one way or another and not to do these diversity work 
because you're going to get pigeonholed. I'm like, I already do. Like, I have lived in departments where it, it wasn't about diversity, but somehow because of my presence, it was that. Y eso es que, like, they don't even think about other forms of identities and intersections that I don't even have. But they, they, they're like, oh, like, you're so different <laughs> you know and I'm like yes let's get like I'm like on the other level like on the much more privileged side of diversity right or di identities that they're talking about and so it's interesting and for me I'm like they're just so basic and they're so like at a other level that I'm like it it would be also a to toxic place working underneath underneath them because you would just be constantly fighting mm -hmm. and being in different you know conversations and stuff that they, it, it doesn't align, which is unfortunate because those are positions that would be very beneficial for students to have. Um, mm -hmm. Those kind of individuals that could work with those students and help them out because mm -hmm. it was such a toxic, like the way that I survived undergrad was through majoring in and Chicano Latino studies. Like if I wouldn't had those two, I don't think I would have made it through business, mm -hmm. even though it was super easy. Like it would have been easy to finish. Um, that's just one layer of like the hiring process. And today um, we brought in our guest, um, Valeria Simmons uh, Garcia, um, pronouns she, her, hers, um, guest position, higher education educator, immigrant advocate and co uh, consultant, founder of First Gen Professional um, Educational Trajectory. Um, she majored in uh, with a Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology and human development at CSU Long Beach. Um, and also went on to do a master's of science in community development at UC Davis. So Valeria Simmons Garcia is the current program director of the undocumented student program at UCLA, where she works closely with the university stakeholders to advocate for educational equity for undocumented students. In previous roles, she led initiatives to address undocumented student needs and helped establish the AB 540 and Undocumented Student Center at UC Davis. Valeria's professional career is influenced by her own experiences navigating life and education in the U.S. as an undocumented student. Um, more recently, she founded First-Gen Professionals, a network highlighting the unique experience of first-gen students turned professionals. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Valeria and I met uh, through LinkedIn. Um, and it was um, through that experience that like I was like uh, Valeria sent me a message and I was like hey would you like to be I've seen your work on Instagram and LinkedIn uh, would you like to come and be a guest at Chicana Code Switchers and so that's why we have Valeria how are you doing I'm doing well thank you so much for having me and um, I just want to say that I've appreciated the conversation that uh, you two just had about uh, navigating the sort of complex, com um, complicated policies of the professional world um, and also highlighting a lot of the work that, you know, employers need to do to um, better address the inequities that even professionals experience while trying to get some of those positions. Mm -hmm. So um, you have a platform called First Gen Professionals mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to have a discussion about like, what are some of the missing conversations you've seen, the trends, through your platform that people um, have told you about that they wish they knew um, beforehand as they tra they're transitioning from student mm -hmm. to now a first-gen professional? Yeah, that 
you know, I would say, first of all, there's a lot of missing conversations on this particular topic. Um, I think really this really stems from my personal experience sort of trying to navigate, um, quote unquote, what professionalism even means. Um, being formally undocumented, I had DACA um, up until, you know, my first two years of my professional world um, or professional career. And I didn't know, um, first of all, I never thought that I would be able to get the job that I had. But secondly, I didn't know how to navigate sort of the, um, the situations or microaggressions that you often discuss in class, right? So I think the, the, mis the missing conversations are definitely um, that, you know, all of these theories and that we've used to explain students of color's experiences in higher ed um, the microaggressions, the, the racism, the imposter syndrome, they're not being translated to what it's like in the workplace. It's almost like those conversations stop there. And so I, I remember, like, I loved school. I love being in a classroom where we can, you know, talk about these uh, microaggressions and, like, call it out and, and kind of find sort of that community with folks and, and who understood. But what happens when you're in the workplace and now your salary and your benefits are dependent on it, can you respond the way that you normally would or do you have to be more tactful? And so I, for me, there's, you know, I'm, I've been trying to look at some of the theories that, again, I've used to sort of um, validate my experience as a student to now try to validate them as a professional because they're all missing. Um, there are some folks who are doing a little bit of work on this, but you know, from navigating again, like sort of the isms that happen in the workplace to what does it mean to um, quote unquote make it and now have degrees. And um, for some, you know, individuals, it's, you know, now being able to take care of their family members, but also that's stressful. It's, you know, now being able to kind of take on more responsibility. So there's, I think from every facet, from like the, this, the workplace in itself to familial to relationship to straddling like you know social classes um they're all missing and i think folks are having them those conversations with each other but we're not having them at the national level that we should be mm -hmm. yeah and they're very um informal conversations that we have like in behind you know like with with cheese sessions with our with our friends and everything but it's there's no um, and nothing really prepares you until the moment that you're going out and like interviewing, right? And people don't give you those hidden secrets or hidden tips of, you know, how long it actually takes. Like I had a career development, um, like an academic, like a, no, a career uh, counselor come into our class for my master's program and basically told us, here's the lay of the land in terms of the job search process. And here's like, it takes like six months for you to get a job. So definitely plan ahead. Like even before that, like a lot of people, and especially my, my experience, like meeting with students, a lot of them look, are looking for jobs right after they graduate. I'm like, that is really late. Um, yeah. And it, depending on when, what your field is, your field may be hiring at a specific the peaks, you know, and there's times like in most of the times like in higher ed, um, spaces like their hiring process in the spring semester starting already and you either start in the summer or in August mm -hmm. you know and if you, if you don't know that like you just missed a whole application cycle 
Um, yeah, and I think it's very privileged to like even think like, oh, it's going to be six months before you find a job. It's like, well, for low income students, the students that were, you know, prepping or we have these first gen programs for, that's that may not be a re- reality and that may not be something that they can wait for. And so I think they're still, you know, in the education um, sector in, in higher ed, they're still. Um, like a lack of, of cultural competency when we think about or when we talk about how do we better how do we best support students. And so what I see is that, you know, we now have first gen programs, which I think are incredible. We have first gen centers. They weren't around when I was in school and that wasn't very long ago. Um, but what I've seen is that those centers are like focused on, you know, making sure students know some of these hidden curriculums, know how they do um, how to navigate, um, you know, the different offices, making sure they feel integrated and making sure they graduate. So then what I see, and, and maybe I can only speak to a, a few departments that I've, that I've, I followed is, but what happens then, right? Yeah. Let's get you, let's get you informed. Let's get you integrated. Let's make sure you have a community, but we also need to start focusing on, let's make sure you're successful beyond this degree. And so I think for me, that became very apparent, too, as, you know, in, in my work, I work with undocumented individuals, those with DACA, some without DACA. And so having to have real conversations about how to support them and how to, you know, ensure that they're aware of some of the opportunities available to them. But the reality is I have some of my students that have been out of school for a year plus and still can't find a job. And they graduated from UCLA, right? But where are those conversations to kind of normalize that or conversations to impede that from happening? Happening. So for, for, you know, the student who graduated from, you know, UCLA being the, first, you know, the top university right now, um, to, to feel like they're now not worthy of it or to feel the imposter syndrome. I had actually someone call me, uh, one of my former students saying, I can't find a job. Like now I'm really feeling like UCLA just let me in um, for diversity purposes questioning their whole, you know, experience or why they even got it to, to the university. And I'm like, that's, that's not right. And it's not fair. And um, this is where, you know, again, the conversations to validate, to empower us, to, to remind us, just like being a student was new and we were, you know, trying to navigate that this whole other piece of, of going into the workplace is new. And we're also like learning to navigate those pieces. Yeah, and, and to speak with the experience of like, because all three of us have worked at some capacity at a center for undocumented, like serving undocumented mm-hmm. students. What I've seen currently is the the experience of like whole dreamer narrative. And it's, it's so, uh, it, this is a really like, for me, a very like, oh, like touchy feely thing, because I'm like, this is the, the the dream is very limited and it only happens when you're in academia as a student. Um, and then the dream becomes a nightmare again, you know, after you graduate and you become to realize you, you prepare the students to feel this special, this like, oh, look at you, you you do this and this and that, and place blame on your parents for bringing you here, like poor you, like pity and like, oh, look, you're not that kind of immigrant, you know? And then after they graduate, like, what, what is the reality? They're not prepared for the macroaggressions within and the questioning that happens after. Because what do employers think? Like, are they helpful in terms of your DACA expiring? And you need, like, these are the things that 
they do not prepare you mm-hmm. for because mm-hmm. you're so used to being accommodated in some sort of way through this narrative that once you hit the you know the job market mm-hmm. that's no one is there to help you later on you know transition to that yeah i i see that and you know it's it's you know there's i think even in that sort of the undocu professionals their conversations are missing so much um because i i see it and i'm i'm sort of i witness it i think in my work constantly where i would say even the folks who serve you know, positions as undocumented student service coordinators who themselves have DACA are not themselves getting support. So it's kind of happening both on the the student level, but it's also happening on the professional level where um, I don't think, and maybe I, I haven't been exposed to it, but I have not seen anyone come out saying like, should DACA be terminated? I'm still supporting my DACA professional who's been doing this, this work, right? Um, and it's unfortunate because the work is personal, the work is professional, the work is, um, there's a lot of labor of love that goes into it. But then how does it make an employer, you know, feel when you're like, I don't know if my university, I don't know if my department has my back if, if the expiration happens or if DACA is terminated. Um, and again, I think in higher ed and, and the conversations are, let's get these students to graduate. Let's get them out. Let's support them while they're here. Um, let's get them to graduation. Let's keep those, those numbers up, right, to, to show that we have a certain percentage of students graduating within a certain, certain time. But um, what happens then? Yeah, and, and the misconception of the, the lack of support of the staff and how I mentioned to you both before, I'm like, I'm not undocumented, but as an immigrant, like, who's going to end up, like, if all the coordinators who are, undocumented themselves or formally undocumented are gone uh, because they're not supported in that capacity, what's going to happen to the students and the lack of that representation being in, on that campus where they, they for maybe the for the first time, they see someone who is an undocumented professional mm-hmm. who is quote unquote making mm-hmm. it, um, but it, they're not really supported financially through their budgets mm-hmm. of their own centers. They're not mm-hmm. supported with their staff that is mm-hmm. needed. Um, and they're not supported in terms of the professional development that they need too, mm-hmm. because they're not sending us to conferences. Um, I don't know who else is. Um, let me know because that would be amazing because <laughs> I want to go to conferences and and professionally develop my own peer mentors and my own like staff, like and give them those opportunities of like I would wish more undocumented individuals saw themselves as wor- working in higher ed. Um, but the reality is very limited. Mm-hmm. And currently, like, we had a discussion about in 2016, all these centers are opening up. But um, I've had discussions with different coordinators and directors where so many badass people have left. Because, I mean, a variety of different reasons. But then you have, like, the so-so mediocre people in there like screwing a very vulnerable population in a specific way and not supporting them. Mm -hmm. And there, I will say there's a, there is a platform. I don't know if you follow them on social media. Um, It's an individual named Shadets who started this and her platform is like undocumented professionals. 
And what she's doing is also highlighting sort of the, the folks that are in these positions. Um, and I think it's really powerful. I, I, like I mentioned, I'm not like undocumented right now. I'm sort of transitioning statuses. So I think my, I, I want to make sure that I, I don't, um, that the platform for undocumented professionals is with folks who are experiencing, you know, the, um, that situation now. Um, but that's, that's, I think it's very powerful to be able to have conversations about being first gens and the intersectional identities that sometimes stem from, you know, immigration to sexual orientation, to gender, to, um, you know, nonconforming, you know, what have you, all of these different identities that, um, impact us. And, and when I think about even just the first gen, it's like somebody with all these, you know, sort of different identities or intersected identities is probably having, will have a different experience um, than some folks. And again, I find it like so fascinating. And, and I'm just like three, four years out of grad school. So this is my first professional job. But I find it fascinating that these conversations haven't been happening um, at a larger scale and I know they're happening at a you know more personal level and informally and I think it's powerful because you know you got to validate your home girl you got to make sure you know you you too you know she's good and she's supported I I love that and you know that's important but the folks that need to be listening to these conversations are are those employers are those you know who who are asking questions like, do you read the Wall Street Journal? That's, that's not relevant to the work, right? Who may themselves not identify a first gen. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping that with this you know, platform, eventually those conversations will get to that level so that we can um, just even focus more on uh, sort of you know, workplace, the culture, and, and the way that we shift that to a more um, inclusive one. For first gens, for POCs, for you know everyone who who, who continues to be marginalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to say that I can definitely relate to all of that you just said because in addition to being first gen, like being undocumented adds that additional layer. Um, not only when we were students, um, but also as professionals, because like I even wonder now that I'm going through the interview process for like these, you know assistant director positions for undocu resource centers. Do I want to disclose I'm a DACA recipient? Do I want to disclose that I have this temporary workers permit that will expire in two years and that and or maybe sooner if you know the Supreme Court decides to eliminate it completely? Like do I want I mean obviously they if they do offer me the position and I do, you know, accept the HR needs to know. So they do eventually find out. But is that putting me like, like, what is that? How are they perceiving me? Oh, like, she'll only be here on a temporary basis. Or she'll, you know, like, does that become a burden? Is that is that a deciding factor for them? For them or other people? Like, is that like, then eliminating me? You know, like, because mm -hmm. now I'm a, it, to some extent, I am not set to be in that organization for very long because of this mm -hmm. structure uh, system mm -hmm. that is limiting my ability to be employed for longer mm -hmm. you know like it's set to be renewed until otherwise noted right until right. otherwise decided so and yeah, for a long time mm -hmm. go ahead go ahead 
Oh, for a long time, like it, it's been interesting because a lot of people, because you know the laws that surround like and that either help or are detrimental to undocumented immigrants, like there's so many. Um, I just went over some training with my peer mentors about explaining like the um, California Dream Act and just in general how students are able to even be on campus and get whatever limited aid there is in California. Supposedly, it's like really advanced, you know, California is advancing in terms of rights of undocumented immigrants and high red or whatever. But there's that that is very limited. And so when I was telling these students, uh, the two students, um, they're undocumented and they're like, oh, like I had no idea. I just kind of figured that, you know, some uh, someone else was going to take care of me in that somehow, some way things aligned and, and worked out. But I there's not a lot of understanding of what does, how does financial aid work? Um, how do you work along the loopholes? How do you advocate for yourself? How do you um, advocate for others? And, and because of the willful ignorance of a lot of administrators, they don't understand how centers, especially if there's professionals who, who are um, student affairs professionals that are like on it, to really inform students and empower them with the knowledge of like, here's how you navigate these things. Um, they think that we're just, I don't know what they think we do, <laughs> but we do everything. Like we're the referrals, we're the counselors, poster we're the pep talkers, we're the advocates, um, life coaches, you know, like everything and anything, honestly, and reg- help them register for classes, and how many, I haven't seen that many centers that actually have a full, full staff, like a retention specialist, an outreach person, um, someone that's uh, specialized with transfer students, um, like all these, like the graduate division, you know, like making sure that undocumented graduate students or undergrads that want to get into graduate school understand the nuances of all that stuff. Like they, we, we need like five, 10 different people in there. Um, to be housed to help us, you know, move forward our 700 or however many caseload we have of students. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that that work is falling on the one person or one and a half person or two people who are themselves experiencing life, you know, as immigrants and documented folks whose laws and news also impact them to do that heavy, you know, that work on their own. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, one, uh, you know, it's, it's, illegal for anyone to consider or the um like immigration status to hire you or not hire you and also like hr can't communicate with with your employer about whether or not you have that guy so if ever that find you find out that it does happen like that is not okay but also i would be curious to to um you know to ask that employer well you know, should, should that come out or should you, somebody would want to disclose that? It's like, well, how are you going to support me? Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I think too, as a first-gen professional is that, you know, sometimes it's hard and, and I get sometimes um, we sort of go into positions, um, you know, out of uh, wanting, need, needing income right away. But I always, you know, I, I think about it like as we're shopping too. It's like, yeah, it would be great for us, for me to work in that space, but it will also be me to benefit from being in that space and what do they have to offer? 
Mm-hmm. And so I sort of play with that. I mean, again, I've only been in, in one role, but I've seen, you know, colleagues really take sort of that initiative and, and leave spaces, even though they don't have anything lined up because it's a toxic place, but also leave, wait for places that come up that end up being really great because they're like that other place wasn't, you know, they weren't going to take care of me the way they should as, as an um, employee. And so those are things that I, I think about a lot too, you know, as, as I as I think about my, my career, it's like, um, you know, I, I want to believe, and, and again, situations may happen where I would need, need, you know, employment and need income, but I want to believe that I am at a place where I'm like, you know, they don't deserve me and I'm, I'm not going to take that job. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's hard and it's a very privileged thing. Um, and, you know, but, but I, I do think we, I would love to have more conversations with people about worthiness and worthiness of what, you know, our asset phase, what we bring to these spaces and, and how we can maximize that to be in spaces that really deserve, deserve us and deserve me. I should say I'm speaking for myself, yeah. but no. I completely agree that sometimes because we are in a space of need, we allow things to happen. We think that they're, they may be the only employers for us or like we won't be hired by other people like we I want to say that for myself based on my experience um, we may devalue ourselves right mm-hmm. and think that that's it like we can't go anywhere else or we're like relying too much on one employer to give yeah. us that yeah. opportunity but it's not yeah. true and so sometimes we do have to be you know even if we're not in, coming from a privileged position, we do have to take a stance. And if we're in a toxic space, we, we do not have to endure that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And being able to work along with, I think if anything has served me as an asset is like the power of organizing with people around you um, and being able to strategize ways that you can support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can provide a, a, like whatever capacity you do have at work, like create those networks where they do help those students, mm-hmm. you know, in that aspect, at mm-hmm. least um, there's so many ways where my own supervisor has collaborated with across different departments or, it's created different opportunities and, and, and opportunities for other people to understand what are the challenges that undocumented individuals have to face and how we need to shift a lot of the things that we have provided and created through DACA to allow that space for DACA or not DACA, like that students do have an opportunity to professionally develop because um, I, cr- I come across so many different students that do not have any idea what to do professionally because they had no like prior experience or exposure to what professional careers are in that field Mm -hmm. I mean and it was hard because I was like working like with that student like to the ground like well in one sense not only is there a lack of um, confidence there's there's no like self-worth you know there's there's a really hard you know, the student was very submissive. And so it's not very affirm, affirm, like, not very assertive, you know, and like, oh, I want this, I want that. It was like, very much like, well, you know, you can tell me whatever. And I was like, no, like, it's not up to me to tell you, you know, what you want, like, what do you like? And so it's working around with the students Mm -hmm. to that level where we have students in that position where they get pushed out of higher ed. And it's like, well, it's not worth it, because you don't even know how to choose. Yeah. And 
And it's hard because then they're at the position where it's always need-based and very emergency, very urgent. And so the like jobs are like, it's just to get income to survive. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I told them, I'm like, well, in some cases you do need to get some internship or some volunteer experience, but, you know, higher ed needs to do a better job of creating volunteer experiences that come with a stipend at the end, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. you know, like, and so you know, there is opportunities that I've seen opening up, but we need to provide more endocrinology trainings for people that come with not only understanding why individuals are undocumented, but much more surface level, um, beyond surface level understanding, but very nuanced where I'm like, here's the kind of cases that we deal with. And I mean, last week alone, I had two different students who had experienced xenophobia in the classroom. And so professors like straight up like pointing at them and it's like deport you, you know, like, and so like, how do you tell the student I'm like report, you know, but also like, where is it going to go through in their own department? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done across. Um, I, like you mentioned, even in California, there's, um, there's a, a, current a research that came out like a year and a half ago from UCI and they were sort of um, UCI professors and students looking at how the UC system was um, you know student experiences in the UC systems given that all of us at this point have a coordinator or have you know two staff and an attorney right where it sounds I mean I'm not you know I will say we do have but there more needs to be allocated and what they were saying is that in different spaces, in the academic, in, in the financial aid office, in the career center, they were being, you know, referred to the undocumented student program. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not an academic, you know, professional, but I, I will do my best. But individuals, even in di- different departments, are not, in some cases, taking the initiative to learn more, to create more, again, relevant you know, practices or inclusive practices, and they just kind of channel the students. So it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is students stop going to other spaces for resources because they're like, well, they have nothing for me and continue to come to us. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, we are sort of um, in, in one role, we play so many different um, sort of, you know, hats and different types of support to students. But it's not fair to students um, for them to be, I call it shuffled, for them to be shuffled from one place to another to try to get a resource. Um, but I would say, you know, we've, this work has been ongoing for a very long time. Um, I would say since the mid eighties and yeah, we've made some progress, at least, you know, my experience sort of navigating higher ed in early 2008 is a little bit different and actually a lot different now with the political climate um, but we still have a long ways. And when we think about graduating against students, undocumented students, the continued conversation is what happens after? We can't just say like we achieved them to get a degree from UCLA and that's it. It's what comes next. Um, and I think I'm very passionate about that. I, you know, my experience, but also all the students that I do end up meeting who I continue to stay in touch with. It's, you know, I also... I, I need to do a better job of making sure that I'm infusing professional development and I'm having authentic and conversations with students about like my own experiences and other folks' experiences about professionalism. But 
you know, again, if we're not having these, our students end up graduating and then they end up questioning themselves and experiencing imposter syndrome for not being able to get a job within two weeks of, you know, graduating. And, and that's a challenge. Um, that's a big challenge, uh, especially because we see more and more first-gen students, more undocumented students going into higher ed. And, um, you know, there, we, we need to do more work, um, as well as supporting those who are first-gen professionals doing this, you know, work already, uh, making sure that they have opportunities to advance in their careers, are professionally developed, and feel like they are supported. Yeah, and yeah. then not, not have a sense that they have to, how we mentioned, like, code switch so much to the point that it's like, <laughs> you know, like, you're, you're exhausted and, and you have to, I mean, there, there's plenty of different spaces where I've been where, you know, first-gen professionals are not allowed to actually give their authentic experience because the department itself, they don't want you to say what really is happening and they want to silence you and so that also you know plays a role of like this is why a lot of these conversations don't happen yeah yeah because there's like retaliation there's mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. violence happening mm -hmm. all the way around mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i i i think one of the my recommendations is like to find a network of people that you can trust and um connect with and be like I have like again my homegirls like I work in a space with like badass women of color and like whenever something happens it's like you, you got time for a walk and I'm like oh okay and even just being able to go and, and talk through things um, or having a space to vent because I think that's important um, changes can change for some people that um provide a little bit of reprieve from sort of it's a yeah and I mean I think, I think yeah. social media and media platforms in general serve such an important role because that's why you can have these conversations to some extent and yeah. to expose it and I feel like in, in general I just have a sense of energy that some you know shit's gonna about to hit the fan you know with a lot of us coming on be like screw this because it's not just one of us, you know, yeah. it's just like multiple of us and we're just going to get tired of it. And, you know, mediocre, white mediocrity is not going to win, you know, and thrive in this new stage. Like yeah. it's just not, yeah. you know, because a lot more have access to this information. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of how media works, I mean, there's a bunch of censoring that's happening even within like the media platforms mm -hmm. and, you know, like you're the agenda like the white supremacist agenda is being pushed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're like just the fact that we are able to even have you know a podcast like this to to connect with individuals is like our own form of resistance yeah. and our own form of absolutely. like you know what you know, like, absolutely <laughs> and that's valuable right because people find find experiences are validated my thought is you can't be marginalizing the the staff who are continuing to oppress the staff who are who do the work that you hire them to do to support the students that look like them. It's just kind of it's, it's really. Um, so I think eventually, um, you know, 
I will say even me though I will say eventually I will I will share out my own my full experiences but it is a little bit you know what I share on the platform um it's a little bit um it's massage because I don't know who's fully reading it I don't you know I know folks know that I'm affiliated with certain departments and um you know to some degree I'm like I I I I need a job right now. <laughs> and I love the, the work that I do and I love the students that I serve. And so it's, that's why, you know, earlier I said, sometimes you can, and sometimes you're like, okay, I'll wait off a little bit. Um, but it's, you I'm know. I'm going to marinate this, this idea that I have of like, how am I going to showcase this experience actually happened to me and be able to share out because um, in general, like I, I read this article that said, like, how can how can, you know, a diversity, equity work and social justice happen in a happy place like higher ed? You know, everyone just wants you to be happy. Everyone just wants you to just come in with a smile on your face and not you know, pretend that nothing happened. What mm -hmm. happened? Not complain. Not complain. Nothing angry. Like I had just like an instance this week where. Everyone's just like, no, like, we don't need to talk about it. We already know what white supremacy is or whiteness. I'm like, clearly you don't, because if you understood, then that's why we should, like, really talk about it. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. why do I keep getting students who experience these things? Like, if you if you only you knew, you know, what, what happens at these centers. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you and I love having these conversations, but it sucks that we keep having these conversations too, because it's the reality of like, things are continuing to, to be the way they, they have been. Yeah. And the conversations only happen with the people in the same circle, yeah. you know, it, it, there's only, it goes only so much and so far where it's like, okay, this venting is, is great, but it's still not a solution. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Because everybody else like keeps brushing you off as like it's not a really a, a real thing and it's unfortunate. And then the amount of privilege, right? So I mean, and this is why we have social media in some ways for only ourselves. Yeah. Um, to share those like <laughs> points. And so yeah. Ariana, do you wanna discuss the, the tweet that we saw this week? Yeah. Um I think this this week we posted the um the meme that said that Quote, my main point about dressing to women of color is that as long as my male white counterparts can show up in chancletas, a hoodie, and cargo shorts without anyone blinking an eye or judging his ability to do his job, don't worry about my hoop earrings or bright colors. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was pretty relevant because, you know, like as we not only uh, code switch, we also have to, you know, dress the part and follow these norms and you know or, you know like the the part of like being able to resist and being like you know what let me point the hypocrisy mm -hmm. of all these ways and in which we're being controlled and being told that it that your identity in general like there's no space for that here mm -hmm. and that it has nothing to do like you're the way that you dress has like nothing to do with the actual work that you end up doing anyway like you're mm -hmm. so worried about how good i look that like because mm -hmm. you know your ugly ass you know style is just mm. terrible and you look sloppy but like you know like there's different perceptions of what is good in the workplace 
that in general like I just get so annoyed about just like the white nonsense every single day in the professional work that things that are again super why are they so like worried about aesthetics when they look so like like crusty you know like the hypocrisy comes back again you know mm-hmm. where the, the idea I'm like what you want me to wear your ugly ass cargo pants you know like is that what you want me to wear because <laughs> Because I could say the same thing to you, you know, mm-hmm. like, what is going on? And- I don't, yeah, I don't even think it's about that. I think it's, like, seen as a threat. Like, you are too in my face kind of thing. Not only is your presence already intimidating or, like, not allowed or not supposed to be there, but now you're dressing and representing this whole other culture that, you know, is more present for them visually than it is just with your presence. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's like just highlighting more of the reasons why they think you shouldn't be there. So well, it's like, cause they don't want you to shine and stick out. Mm-hmm. That's the point that mm-hmm. they're like, so they're so intimidated. And so mm-hmm. they're so hurt by mm-hmm. the fact that you can have joy and look good and feel good within the presence that you're mm-hmm. supposed to be serving mm-hmm. and being like not seen you have to be invisible you are like in the server position as opposed mm-hmm. to being like you know the ones being served yeah that's so annoying and so I commented on that post and so I wrote um why do they have so many pockets uh, what are they storing privilege so the new hashtag for this episode is Hashtag pockets full of privilege because of the cargo pants. So if you see any of that nonsense up here, <laughs> burn the cargo pants. They're not allowed. <laughs> They're canceled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that should end. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think that the, it does inspire, I will say, students or individuals that we work with when we do bring some of our ourselves into the workplace um and I've heard it before and I've seen it and you know students at least I'm very intentional it, it's hard because sometimes I fall into that like I I, I was talk I was um talking to one of my colleagues about this situation we were going to have a meeting with someone pretty high and normally our department tends to be a little bit more informal um casual but um, after the meeting, we realized everyone had dressed up, right? And how I, I didn't think about it when I was dressing. I just, I, you know, but it's some, some there is seeped in there that I have to dress a certain way when I'm, you know, in a meeting with. Um, but what I also noticed is, again, I always have like my big earrings. It's a colorful earrings to, to add to that outfit or my red lip. Um, but even in, in knowing that, that that's not, you know, the way that, at least for me, back 10 years ago, we, we were being told to dress professionally has changed, or at least, you know, to, to, I want to bring in my own style and I want to keep my authenticity. Sometimes um, I was reflecting on that. I was like, sometimes it seeps in there that this is what professionalism, quote unquote, looks like. Um, mm. So that was a fascinating kind of, again, I'll, a lot of my colleagues talk about this and, and we understand this, but yet somehow we all sort of fell into that when, um, when we had this meeting. And so it made me realize that I still have some deconstructing to do and, and some, you know, kind of processing to do um, on the day-to-day. 
when I can say, I didn't really think about it, but I'm like, eh, it, it's, it's in there. It's seeped in there somehow mm-hmm. or some way. Mm-hmm. And conditioned but- to, to have to feel that, uh, to not feel those microaggressions. Cause it's also like a sense of like preservation. Yeah. Uh, where for me, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to correct that person for mispronouncing my name, you know, like I'm, or, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling like microaggressed today. So, you know, maybe I should follow the rules in some sense, yeah. but it, you know, you still preserve some sort of you yeah. in one way or another. Right. Yeah. No. And it's, I will say people take notice though, when, when, um, and, and I, again, people are watching and sometimes you're, you're um, empowering someone on the side. And I, I think that's powerful. I, I, I've heard somebody say this quote to me. It was like, um, when you share your story or when you do something, um, you, you know, can and sometimes do liberate others to be like, oh, shit, like, that is my story, too. I can talk about that. Or, oh, shit, like, she wore those hoop earrings. I'm going to bust out my hoop earrings, too. And so um, there is a balance. And I, I agree with you. The self-preservation is really important. And that's another key thing that I, I comes out with like first-gen professionals, particularly engaging in, in work that impacts marginalized communities where they themselves are part of marginalized communities. Um, you know, and I, I've had, I've seen colleagues and friends um, just go through like burnout and, and give so much of themselves and, and, <laughs> I think it's valuable and it's beautiful, but, um, but also how are we taking care of each other? And so that's another, that's a whole nother piece of like, what does self-preservation look like? How do we validate that? It's okay. Like, don't go, you don't have to go through all your emails to get today, or it's okay. Take that mental health day. Um, or it's okay. You know, whatever it is that you want to do, because it, it becomes hard when you are, you know, again, when you know why you do the work you do. And you know why you need to be there and, you know, you know what it means to, to folks to show up for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, what are some of the next steps that you see for first-gen professionals? Steps. So I just applied for a um, kind of like seed grant funding. Um, I actually want to make it official. I, I want to start um, – like having more of these conversations sort of virtually or in different spaces. Um, I also want to do some workshopping. Um, I think that's important. I'm still thinking about like, how do I get to the next level? How, you know, how do, what is, I'm still trying to learn what I mean, like kind of go through the motions of being a first time professional. Um, And uh, I think meetups. Uh, meetups are, are, I think, folks are connecting, folks are, you know, talking about their own individual experience, which I think is beautiful. And there's, again, I mentioned, like, there are different focuses, right? Some folks are sort of navigating life, family life, after getting degrees, some folks are navigating um, sort of the social class straddling of on paper, technically, you're not low income, but that's how you've grown up. Or what does it mean for you now to be able to travel but for your family to not be able to travel um so i think it's, it's generally i'm going to continue to have these conversations continue to post some inspiration on instagram and you know hopefully make this like a real kind of deal service where we can work with and support and you know provide professional development to first-time professionals but we'll see 
We'll see. Well, know that we are um, always looking forward to those posts. I personally like your platform and can relate and, and the messages are uplifting and or snap snap, you know, like yeah. the messages you. that you that you post. And I, I guess I just want to add before, you know, we end uh, our conversation today, but that it's important to note that as undocumented people, when we think of like, you know, unemployment, um, we are not eligible for unemployment. Like, it's recommended not to, you mm-hmm. know, apply for unemployment because of the repercussions that it might have later on should one try to fix our immigration status. And that was something that I found out through my own research. You know, like people are like, you know, oh, you should apply to, you know, you know, with, especially with this current president that is making it more difficult for immigrants to apply for uh, social services, um, you know, and and unemployment being like you're relying on the government to support you, that can later on have repercussions that may affect the, the people's ability to fix their immigration status, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is just like something that I learned that I want to share because, you know, when, as people, you know, as the, you know, as the, what is it called? The uh, economic, um, as we think of like the, the recession as there's conversations around that you know this might be something that people will want to look into and unfortunately from what i've um, researched it's not an option for undocumented Mm -hmm. immigrants Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that yeah yeah and so um, we want to close off with some announcements so um, ariana could you tell us about the graduate school application webinar yes um we will be having uh the deadline for the graduate school application webinar tomorrow. Um, so anyone who's interested in learning about uh, the application process, uh, tips from us as we navigated ourselves um, and other questions that you may have, please register to our webinar. We have the link posted on our Instagram and um and you're welcome to join us. Um, we will be deciding dates soon. So please fill out the application with yeah. the preferred dates. So the pre-registration is on um, August 25th by midnight. But um, individuals could still register. Uh, we do have the two dates coming up for the webinar that we're going to post. And it's going to be in September. Um, you do have to um, fill out the registration that way we have your email because we we're going to send out the invite through email um also um the graduate school application webinars we're going to have a specific writing prompt webinar series so it's just going to be talking about the writing components so we wrote writing prompts because there's so many different versions of writing that you need to um, send in to some of these applications. So we want to break down exactly what those writing prompts may be. And um, just to prepare you through, you know, the process and just break it down, demystify certain things. And we will have a, um, one of my friends who is an English lecturer coming into like, who specializes in all this like writing stuff to um, have this talk and it will take place in October. So definitely look out for those registration um, 
refer to your friends or anyone who's thinking about doing graduate school, what would you wish to happen in the intention of these two, of these different kinds of webinars? It's to just like expose individuals through like the intro version of what graduate school is and to hopefully those two components, it's sometimes the writing prompts that is the biggest, you know, hurdle for, for individuals to put together. Um, Aside from the GRE, if the GRE is like another or another or exam that you have to do, some programs don't have the GRE. And so we'll discuss all of the nitty gritty stuff um, soon. Um, and so the other part of our, um, but we I wanted to showcase, this is really exciting. So based on our conversation, so I wanted to give a resource out to um, our listeners is our POC business shout out is this app called Liberate Meditation. And it's both um, available on Apple and Android. And so, and this article is from the Black Enterprise. I'm going to read off. So it's um, Julio Rivera found a deep-seated need to connect to the wellness space. As an Afro-Latino, he found a practice that worked uh, for him at New York Insight Meditation Center. Uh, when that was taken away due to the intensive schedule, he felt extremely isolated, which caused a sudden onset of anxiety that he wasn't unsure how to cope with. Um, after a, a through search, he discovered there wasn't a platform out there to specifically meet his needs. Rivera took his knowledge and background as a software engineer and created Liberate Meditation. It's a meditation app for people of color built to provide empowerment and support. The site states that it's dedicated to empowering Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities on their journey to find inner peace. Folks can sign up for free to access from instructors of color on their path through guided meditations and talk. We want to help empower people, not only to meditate, to show them that there's something you can do about your suffering, said Rivera in a statement. We can help each other get free and be liberated. The platform showcases content that is specific to the Black community. Topics range from dealing with microaggressions to cultivating loving kindness for difficult people. Uh, there are specific chats from unique um, authors like Jan Willis, who hosts Dharma Talks, addressing the intersection of Buddhism and racism. Users can select the timeframes for their practices that range from 5 to 20 minutes. They are then asked to rate their experience through the platform. We continuously see how touched people are, said Rivera. A few people have mentioned in their ratings that they cried during their meditation and were able to release pent-up emotions. To me, that makes all the challenges and sacrifices that came up with building a business worth it. I want folks of color all over the world to know that they are not alone. So this is a really great resource um, because... From a conversation that I had from a friend was that uh, meditation or therapy or things like may not be very um, helpful in terms of having those discussions about what happens with racism and microaggressions or the actual realities that black indigenous people of color have to deal with. So check those things out. Hopefully some individuals, you know, find it helpful, download it, um, I use it. I already used it and it's amazing. So hopefully this is a this is something that helps. Yes, self-care is important. Um, and as we conclude, we want to thank you, Valeria, for joining us today, uh, for all the wisdom, the insight, and sharing a little bit about how your platform was created. Uh, we hope this is not the only time that you join us. Um, and so with that, I will close out um, and provide you all with um, our email, chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com. Um, as Patricia shared, um, 
we are happy to share POC business, conferences, events, shout outs, and listener letters. You can also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include it on our uh, your recorded message in our future episodes. So please follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter, X Code Switchers. And if you want to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. And until next time. Thank, thank you, Valeria. You. <laughs> of course. Thank you. Bye.